What's going on, guys? We are welcome to the show. Today, we are going to bring in someone who is basically started off as an engineer and he was building a side gig as a real estate rental with a real estate rental portfolio. He quit his job and basically he has 4,000 units and has written for Forbes. Today, what we're going to bring in my guest, Lane. Lakin, welcome. Lane, welcome to the John Papaloni Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. So, yeah. so how are things going? Things are going pretty well. Um, over, over across the portfolio, people are paying rents around 97% collections. Um, you know, that's things are good when you invest your cash flow. We don't worry about what the prices do. Well, that's the key thing, right? It's cash flow. Cash flow is more important than the cost. So. Right, right. Well, I mean, appreciation is nice, right? But, um, you know, cash flow is, I think, more the prudent way, especially to get started. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, you know, by the sounds of it, you basically, you started off getting the, uh, you know, the typical uh, go to school, get education, get a job. But uh, I mean, clearly that wasn't enough for you. That's right. I mean, so I, I kind of grew up in a very frugal household where we're told to, you know, become, you know, professionals, right? Get a, get a good education. I became an engineer, started to uh, save up to buy a house to live in. Cause again, that's the financial dogma that everybody teaches you that, and we'll kind of get in today, you know, which I don't really believe in th these days after what I've learned. Um, but yeah, bought that first house to live in because I was never home. I decided to rent it out and the mortgage was 1600 bucks the rents were 2200 dollars a month this was up in seattle washington and got my taste of cash flow right i mean i was making a few hundred bucks of cash flow at least and i was like wow if i keep them doing this a few more times i'll be able to quit the rat race and fire my boss eventually and that yeah. was kind of where it was all started that makes sense i mean obviously growing up you would have never imagined that so, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I find entrepreneurship sometimes, not entrepreneurships, but ideas come just by fluke, just by day-to-day -day stuff you're doing. And then all of a sudden you figure things out and it works for you. Right, right. Um, Questioning things, right? Why do we do certain things the way we, we're doing it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's the thing. You have to question things. So, like, okay, so yeah, that's, that's where I want to go with this is that um, you, you got your first unit. But how did your unit turn in from, okay, yeah, you just said that it worked with for you once, right? Um, and then you obviously did more. How many in total did you get into? Like, how many single-family homes did you get into? So, yeah, after that first one, um, went and bought another, right? I mean, that's the logical thing to do. Um, bought another couple units in Seattle, Washington. And then, then I realized that sophisticated investors don't buy in these high-priced areas. Um, they go to more of these secondary tertiary markets. So, that, you know, you don't buy in California, Hawaii, Seattle, Portland, right, where these rent-to-value ratios are low. You buy in these areas where we're looking for 1% rent-to-value ratio or higher. So a lot of these markets would be like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Memphis, Little Rock, places in, you know, more the the Midwestern, the Southern states um, where you can get that one super important one percent rent to value ratio to be able to cash flow makes total sense uh, and did you contain is it like all your is your whole portfolio just single family homes uh, in the beginning it was so i continue to buy more and more properties um got five in atlanta 
four in Birmingham, one in Indianapolis, one in Pennsylvania. And, you know, so I had 11 rentals by the year 2015. So it took a while from 2009 buying that first one to 2015. I I mean, a lot of this is just saving money right, from my engineering job. And I was pretty good at saving money, but I parlayed that into investments. And, but still, I mean, you, know, you, you do the math. It's not, it took, took a long time right, to buy all those rental properties. Um, but eventually at that point, I kind of hit a pivot point. I started to join different masterminds and get around other high net worth investors. And a lot of the, the teachings and the lessons from those folks were – you know, at some point when you become an accredited investor, you get out of owning directly uh, rentals, right? You don't want the headaches. You don't want to be managing the property manager. And with 11 rentals, I had maybe an eviction or two every year, some kind of big issue that happened, like a tree falling on the house or a plumbing issue every quarter. Not, not bad. I mean, the property manager takes care of that. But, you know, with 11 rentals, that's maybe a few thousand dollars of cash a month. It's awesome, but I don't know what family could survive off $3,000 a month. I need three, four times that. So the, the obvious solution would be, well, go get 30, 40 rentals. But then that would be an eviction every other month, some kind of big catastrophe every couple of weeks, just not scalable. And that was kind of where I realized I saw the light that I need to move more towards these private placements and syndications. That's true. Okay, I get, I get what you're saying there. So... How did you do that? Like, are you like you got uh, partners? Did you joint ventures? Yeah, so I I got around other people and I started to learn how to acquire and put these deals together. Um, a lot of this is your network, right? Like to get these larger apartment complexes, you're going to need to have experience with the lender here in America. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac are the agency um, lenders, and it's a little messed up because unless you've done one of these big deals before, you know, 100, 200 unit complex, you can't sponsor your own deal. So the question is like the chicken and the egg question. How do you get it if you've never had it before? Well, I mean, you have to have somebody on your team, on your partnership team, who's had one of these deals in the past. So eventually we, we got somebody to sponsor a deal for us so that we could get the so-called Fannie Freddie card. And then we could to, uh, to sponsor our own deals. That makes sense. How did you find the deals? Like, the, like obviously, I, I would imagine that um, you know when you get into that kind of scale, they're not just hanging around the MLS where you just click on it one day and say, "Poof, oh, great deal!" Right? I'm sure you found it. You know, had to find it. Uh, you know, using different resources. I mean, on, on the contrary, right? when you get into the commercial world, um, brokers control deals, especially the deals that we're looking for. We're looking for stabilized assets, so that's defined as ninety percent occupied or more. These are not distress assets. The, the owner might have a problem, but the problem the problem does not lie with the property, right? So and you know, in the commercial realm, you know, these people have more than 20, 30, 40, 50 units. They're not dummies. They're not gonna go, oh, let me look at this yellow letter I got and let me just sure, I'll just sell it to this guy <laughs> for 50 cents on the dollar. No, people aren't like that, like how they are, you know. You, this is why I don't like wholesaling houses, right? I think I call I think it's not really ethical when you kind of swindle somebody out of all their home value by giving them a cash value or something like that. People say it's like helping them with the problems. I don't really buy that, but whatever, right? I mean, we can agree to disagree, but in the commercial realm, you're working with sort of sophisticated sellers and they use brokers. I mean, brokers are the key in 
I might offend some people listening, but like in the commercial property or commercial real estate broker realm, they do a pretty good job at finding sellers and they really earn their, their stripes where I believe in residential property manager or residential realtors. It's all about marketing, you know, for um, unsophisticated buyers and sellers. Um, that's kind of the game, but in the commercial world, they actually add value and, you know, they're, they're hunting for deals for us. They're the ones calling up lists of sellers to find deals for folks like us. And, you know, a lot of these deals, they trickle through brokers. And so it's key to have a good broker relationship. Absolutely. I agree with you um, to a point, obviously, like I, I still think there's a need for people in residential, but I also agree with you. There are some that are unethical out there as well. Um, it is what it is. And yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like one of the things we have, I don't know if it's the same there, but I, I, it must be because you said the yellow letters, right? Where you come home and you see a little yellow letter taped to your door saying that they want to buy your home and they'll buy it with cash and stuff. And I think that's a horrible idea. Um, yeah. The reason yeah. people do that is because they can't buy it in the open market and get the price point they want it. So reality is they're doing the sell. The seller is doing themselves a disservice by taking those offers. I mean, they think, and, and the big sales pitch is always avoid the realtor, save the commission. But if it was really that simple, then why wouldn't everybody do that? The reason you, you, you would use a broker or you would put it on the system is you're going to get more for it. Right. So, right. That's my opinion, right? I mean, like, like right now, I don't know. Well, I'm assuming that it's the same everywhere. The market is bananas. And, you know, I mean, things are going into multiple bids. People are outbidding each other and stuff. Um so to come, you know, so what is an, like a person looking for a home with a cash deal going to do? They're going to put that yellow note to the door, hoping that they won't go on the market. So that's a clear sign that doing it through a broker or some form of an agent is going to be a lot better option for people. Right, right. I mean, we, we own apartments now and we get all these like yellow letters and well, they're not always yellow, right? And we get all these like random like. Hey, do you want to sell your properties for pennies and dollars? Like, uh, no, dude. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, I don't know. People think it works on the commercial deals, and they think it's a bigger paycheck. I think it's why they do it. But the success rate is way, way lower than trying to um, take advantage of some unsophisticated seller. You know, um, it just works. It's just a different game, right? Like, I mean, like that's why we like commercial properties because they're based not on the comparable sale approach the comps right which to me is emotion commercial yeah. properties are based on net operating income so and this is what's key for us like we go in we buy a stabilized asset we add value to the property so we usually put maybe four to six thousand dollars of rehab into every unit new flooring new appliances new paint job maybe some playground equipment to bump the rents up overall 100 150 bucks across the board but what we're doing there is we're increasing the operating income Increasing the operating by increasing the increasing the income or decreasing expenses, one or the other. Um, you know, you increase the net operating income, which you divide by the cap rate, and that's how much money you've created. So, you know, you you do something like uh, reserve parking. You know, hundred bucks a month times fifteen. That's new revenue. That's goes right to the bottom line. You divide that by the cap rate and that's how much money you've kind of instantly created. You might've instantly created like a quarter million dollars of value just by doing that one play right there. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And now that's one big common myth I think that's out here is where people think that the home they live in is an investment. 
that's a home, not an investment. You don't make any money off of it. So I, I, I personally believe unless you're putting cash in your pocket, it's not an investment. Maybe an asset, but not an investment. That's correct. And that's why, you know, kind of going back to, there's a lot of things that people think that is good financial advice that our parents taught us or what our coworkers are doing. But as I started to join these different masterminds and started to, you know, implement a lot of these strategies myself, I started to realize a lot of the mainstream financial advice out there is completely wrong. And the wealthy do things very differently. Um, I'm a big believer in renting your primary residence taking that money and parlaying that into investments, growing it a lot faster. Now I will caveat saying that most people are bad with their money. They are not financially responsible and positive every month. Um, and it's different if you know you don't have a good paying job, but for a lot of folks in my group, good paying salaries, you should be cash flow positive every month just from a personal finance basis. And, you know, for a lot of those people, you know, they may need to follow the Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey advice, right? Yeah, true. And that home becomes a forced piggy bank, a forced savings account. And some people need that. But for a lot of people that work with me, you know, they're there. Those are the max out your 401k type of people, you know, max out retirement accounts. People are really prudent with their, their money. Um, they're good savers. And that's where I think, you know, it's a double-edged search. Those people need to kind of get on the offense and buy assets instead of buying a house that's not an asset. It's more of a liability. Yeah, that's true, actually. You're right. Now, let me ask you something. We have ups and downs in the economy. Has uh, do, what I was going to say is, how does, uh, like, how does a uh, down or a recession or some sort of uh, pullback affect you? Or does it even affect you? Yeah, so we're cash flow investors, right? Like the, the biggest thing is to go and stabilize assets that are cash flowing day one. So when a, a bump in the road comes, something in the economy and, and prices take a tumble, well, we don't really care because we're kind of buying cash flow streams. Um, we're kind of insulated from the price and we can sell when the price are high. But when things are not, we just kind of hold and keep the cash flow stream. Um, I think this strategy allows you to kind of be very patient and like don't really care what the prices are doing up and down. Whereas like most people who got hurt in the big recession in 2008, I mean, they're betting for appreciation, right? And that's when they got hurt. But those minority investors out there that are mainly investing for cash flow, I mean, they got nothing to worry. I mean, always is a good time to be buying. That's true. That's true. Like I, I always say that too. You can't lose in real estate unless you have to sell. That's the only time that it can hurt you. Right. So, yeah. So, I, obviously, uh, real estate is a very, very good investment. Um, commercial is obviously the better option. And in terms of, yeah. So, let me ask you something. Have you ever sold anything? Like, or do you hold on to everything? We we sell what it makes sense. I mean, if we've doubled our money, sometimes it makes sense for us to exit. Um, it ultimately comes up to, hey, can we make our money somewhere else, right, in the next deal? Um, so we are constantly looking at what's happening in the market. Um, some markets we've been in, in the past, we aren't as bullish as we are anymore as other markets come up and become more of that hotter emerging market. Um, so we're always kind of moving around. But, I mean, when, you know, we're cash flow investors, we're not – we're not betting on some kind of, you know, fluke that happened yesterday, like the, a hurricane that came in the other 
you know, last month or something like that. We're more slow patient investors and trying to pick up, jump from one cash flow stream to another as we force appreciate the assets, add value, rehab units. Um, that's kind of our, our game. And, you know, when we get into a project, we're not kicking tenants out. We are typically just rehabbing units as they naturally come up for turnover. So, you know, it takes us a couple of years to get through most of the units. And, you know, it's, just, it's essentially a slow flip. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, obviously, everything has a challenge. And what was your big, like, what was, what I'm going to ask you is, what was your biggest hurdle, you know, starting this? Like, get you know, once you decided to go from home to home and into the, you know, into bigger items. Like, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing I think for most folks is like getting started buying that first rental property. Once you do that, all these, these numbers, a 1% to rent to value rule, you know, they, they actually make sense, right? As opposed to just something on a spreadsheet. I mean, if people want, they can download my free analyzer at simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer. It helps you, helps you underwrite a single family home purchase, gives you all that, you know, the, the footnotes and rules for expenses like uh, repairs, maintenance, uh, CapEx, um, vacancy, all that stuff, right? I mean, right now, that's the best that you've got. It's just like kind of a working model like that. But, you know, once you own properties, you have a gut feeling of, oh, okay, yeah, I know I better put in 50 bucks every month for vacancy because I may go the full year without a vacancy coming up, but I know how it kind of normally feels and just my heuristics kind of know how these numbers kind of go back and forth. Or um, my HVAC went out, right? That was 4,000 bucks. We did three, four grand. And I'm like, okay, now I know why I'm putting that 150 bucks in CapEx every month. Right for those big ticket items that pop up, um, but yeah, I mean, I I think that was a big step. And then when I became more of an accredited investor to get off of the single family homes, right, and into the syndications and private placements, because you know most high net worth investors they start to realize that they need to get into more of a scalable asset as their net worth creeps up over half a million dollars, especially. Um, so to get in for you know that's headaches. Invest with the pros and being an LP passive investor too. So less liability. And then, you know, especially some people are really skittish about debt, right? So when you're a passive investor, you know, the debt gets put in your name, it gets put in your sponsor's general partner's name. So that's kind of a, a deal makeup for passive investors. And now they can go and invest, um, spread their wealth over multiple deals, in different business plan, different geographic areas. And that's how they piece together their portfolio. Okay. I can, yeah. That's the other thing I want to get into. Um, so you said, obviously they're not taking on the debt. It's, it's going to someone else. Um, how do they guarantee their protection? Like, 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 yeah, if it's in, if somebody else is acquiring it, how do they know they're not going to lose out? Yeah. So the way it's structured here in America, you know, all this goes to the SEC securities exchange. So it's a, we do is like a reg D 506 B. Um, it's, it's think of it like a mini IPO in a way. So we buy a property, we put it into an LLC and we have all this paperwork that signs passive investors up to own portions or the per percent per out of share of that LLC. And so essentially that's their ownership structure. Um, all right. All right. That makes sense. So basically they own a portion of the corporation that owns the asset. Right. Right. No different. I mean, it's just pretty standard private placement random. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Obviously, um, yeah, I was going to say, has there ever been any uh, 
issues in terms of uh, like how does the securing financing work in this? Yeah, so we the sponsor, the general partners, we kind of, we have our profiles and we go up and with our track record and experience, um, we go and apply for debt. Now the next the lender is going to go look at the deal. They're going to pull the financials and see if it's going to hit certain metrics. One of those key metrics is the debt service coverage ratio. They're going they want to know that their note is safe by the asset. The asset pays for the note service. Today, they're looking for like a 1.25 debt service coverage ratio or greater. So that's one of the key metrics. And of course, they're looking at a myriad of other things as bankers do. But essentially, that's what they're looking for, the asset to pay for itself. And then they're looking for the sponsor, the general partners, us um, or myself to go in um, that we have experience. We've done this before. Right. And then, you know, they don't really care who the passive investors are. Right. The passive investors are just LPs, um, but they want to know that we have the money too right so that's another another part of it that makes total sense that makes total sense yeah um all right so like pretend somebody wants to get you know is interested in uh, doing this themselves and they want to learn more about it how would they go about it yeah i would say um depending where they are in terms of the journey right when i mean the journey is like your net worth essentially if you're under a quarter million half a million dollars you need to go buy some rental properties and get your net worth up Right. And I would really recommend getting your experience level up so you know what you're doing. Um, best way to do is buy a little rental property. Right. Some people will say, hey, go after a bigger property. And I'm like, yeah, you, when you're new and you don't know what you're doing, you, you don't want to go after a big asset. You're going to mess it up. You're going to fall harder. So I would suggest check out my website um, and go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash turnkey. Um, turnkeys are, I don't sell them. But they're a great way to get started. And that's how I got initially started, right? There are these properties that a rehabber will go in and fix it up, new, new HVAC, new plumbing, new electrical, new roof. And sometimes they'll even put a tenant in there for you. So it really is kind of like training wheels for new investors. So I would kind of check that out. Um, my podcast, initially I was talking about turnkey rentals a lot because that's what I was kind of into. But as I became more of a current investor, my podcast has kind of moved more towards the syndication and private placement side. That makes sense. What is your podcast? So everybody who wants to check it out, they can. Uh, simple Passive Cash Flow, Passive Investing, uh, found on iTunes, Google Play. Um, the website URL's link is simplepassivecashflow.com. And my email address is lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you've been at this since 2015. So you're six years in, which is great. 2009. Um, so I've been at wow, this for almost a long. dozen years. I mean, it's not a get rich quick thing. No, definitely. This yeah. is uh, slow and steady, right? Yeah, we're not we're not house flippers out here. We are slow and steady buy and hold investors. But you know, the thing is, you need money to invest, right? If you don't have money, you can't invest. Very good point. Very good point. You know, are, let me ask you another question: Are is basically is real estate your only uh, portfolio? Or do you invest in other stuff as well? I mean, so I, I'm an operator, right? I operate apartment complexes. Obviously, I'm going to eat my own cooking. Um, but I, I would probably say 80% of my portfolio is what I like to have in these kind of workforce housing sector, apartments, mobile home parks. Um, I do branch out from time to time. Um, I've done some of the assisted living developments, different developments. I also like um, internet-based businesses. You, know, you buy a beat-up website. Increase the value. 
um, I, I, I understand that stuff, so I will invest in that type of things. Um, but you know, eighty percent of it is real estate for a variety of reasons. You know, cash flow. It's a hard asset. Gets good debt service on it, right? I mean, the governments here in America, and, and I'm betting Canada too. People are begging. Yeah, government wants you to do this, and also the tax event advantages too, right? I mean, I could go make a lot of money in Bitcoin, but I, I need to make almost two times as much in Bitcoin to be able to keep the same money at the end of the day as real estate, because I can pretty much offset all of my gains in real estate with in different tax strategies that you don't have with other asset classes. Absolutely. And I think uh, like, yeah, like personally, I think something like Bitcoin is a higher risk, right? Because you don't control the cash flow or the, or how it goes or anything about it. Sort of you just wake up, whatever it is, it is. So. Right, right. And, you know, one of my principles is like, I don't go into anything I don't have an unfair advantage in. So what are like, you know, when we go into these apartments, we're staying below the large institutions, you know, just investing people's retirement funds at a really measly rate. And we're staying above the mom and pop investors buying, you know, single family homes, quads, duplexes, like, so we're staying above one, $2 million. So we're between a couple million or a few million and 20, $30 million purchase price. And in that void is a nice sweet spot for us to kind of operate and buy assets in. So not anybody can go buy a 300 unit apartment complex that's, you know, 20, $30 million, but we can, because we can aggregate capital from investors. And, you know, I think that's, that's the reason why I think the deals are so good for us in that, that, that void. Absolutely. Makes sense. Like, if I'm not getting too personal, what's the largest asset you currently have in terms of real estate? Like how many units and like 303 units, 303 yeah. units. Yeah. Okay. Houston, Houston, Texas, Houston. Okay. What's the, what was your first purchase? Like, I mean, like after like the first, you know, multi-unit building, I believe it was like a 39 unit class C. So in the beginning, we were buying these more class C properties, which are a lot more of a headache. Uh, tenants are really difficult to work with, um, a lot worse locations. And I think over time, we've kind of um, swam upstream to acquire more B class assets or B, B class assets are better. Just a little bit less hands, uh, you know, headaches for us, the operators, and a little bit more consistent collections, which equate to cash flow. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is just we're able to do larger deals, right? When we started off, you know, 39 units was a stretch for us, right? That makes sense. Now, let me let me ask you something for clarity. What's the difference between Class A, Class B, and Class C assets? The Class A are luxury assets. Um, these are typically new builds, less than a decade or two old. They're going to cater towards your white-collar professionals, Um Unfortunately, a lot of these places, you're not going to hit the rent-to-value ratios needed to be able to cash flow, right? Um, class C assets have a lot better cash flow, but they kind of have the other set of problems, a lot less, more more crime. Um, a lot of these guys, they don't have more than 500 bucks in their bank account, right? So collections can be difficult. And it takes a lot to kind of turn a community around. We can turn communities around, right? Because we have that scale, 50, couple hundred units. But when a single family home investor goes into a class C area, they're just part of part of the group, right? They, they're just part of the block. Um, class B assets where we kind of like to stay once again, like, you know, these are 
folks paying maybe 800 bucks to 1200 $1,400 a month for rent, you know, in that area. And a lot of these are, are Southern states. Um, and, you know, like I, I think class B, it's not a general rule of thumb is like class B locations. It's safe to be there in the daytime. You maybe don't want to be there at night. Class C areas, you don't want to be there really day or night. Any, you know, just, I wouldn't really want to be out there. Um, I get in, get out what I need to do. Um, and, you know, that's most like newbie investors want to invest in the class A, but the numbers don't work. Right. Right. Have you ever done that? Like, have you ever, you know, gone into the class A and invested and even though the cash flow really wasn't there or, or do you just purely avoid it? We've done it. Um, very small portion of my portfolio, I would say like 10% or less. But the only reason we were able to do it is we built the thing. We, we rehabbed the whole, it was kind of a gut job. And then the other one, we got these special financing to be able to make the numbers actually work. So we got access to FH, an FHA loan, which is like a 35-year amortization at like 2, 2%, 3% debt, where it totally made it sense to do it. It kind of brought the low returns up to a decent level to hold that class A asset at that at that price. Um, but, you know, like it's kind of a special case scenario, right? Absolutely. That makes total sense. I get it. I get it. If... Um... Oh, I had a question. It just slipped my mind. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I think class B is kind of the place, class B, C plus kind of the place to be. That's the sweet spot where you're going to get the most returns for the least amount of headaches. Um, but I think it's important to diversify a little bit. Um, I mean, like, look at this last, last pandemic. I mean, normally we like to stay in the class Bs because, you know, normally what happens in a traditional recession is the class A people lose their job. Everybody loses their jobs throughout right yeah it's kind of a thinning of the herd but the a's move to the b's where we kind of catch the people falling down right we have more tenants for us in the b's as the a's kind of get to get out of their 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 luxury condo right or their luxury housing but that didn't happen during this last pandemic most white collar professionals perfectly fine working from home it was life as normal in fact a lot of these guys were able to buy houses after that because they were you know, the, the biggest inconvenience for them was that they had to order Grubhub a little bit more than they'd like, right? I mean, who would have thought? Yeah, that's true. Right? I mean, I still think that it is prudent to assume that in our next recession, the A's are going to get beat down and come back to us in the B class and C class. But you yeah, never I mean, know. Yeah, you never know. That's true. That's very true. That's very true. Like, yeah, for our, even in Canada, for our, um, the, um, pandemic actually increased real estate like it was just you know when we first shut down like our very first shutdown um obviously it was very new to everybody in the world we didn't know you know people were trying to figure it out i don't think any government knew what was going on so natural recourse is just shut down um while they figure it out and so we kind of had a pause for about a month and a half in the market and then we got back to it not knowing what to expect. And I, I, I guess that month and a half to two months, whichever it was, got people to realize how big or how small their home truly was. Yeah, they had to spend a little more time than they like. I mean, and part of that is, you know, supply, the, the old supply and demand, right? So there was not very supply. 
And there's every pretty much major market out there. Low supply. Maybe the demand was higher. Maybe it was lower. We don't know. But because supply was so low, that's why prices came up. Suppose that. And to me, I this is why I don't like residential real estate because it's all based on emotion, right? Supply and demand. Um, I I think that what's the real indicator to look at is like what is the rents, right? how are the rents tracking, right? Because that's a real indicator where people are going to spend their money, who don't have it's more of a non-discretionary budget, right? They're renter by necessity, where people buying houses they're typically that you know, the, the higher end, and that's not a good slice of what's really going on out there as, you know, rents, rent bumps or rent decreases. Absolutely. Like, this is what, what we've gone through. Like, a lot of time that, um, like, during this time, the downtown core of Toronto was kind of emptying out, and rents took a bit of a uh, beating, should I say, and or at least in the core. But if you left the core... And just say you started driving, we'll say within 30 minutes west or east or north of uh, the city, th they weren't uh, affected all that much. Um, very, you know, minimal amount, not enough to even worry about. But if you were in the core at that moment, you took a big beating. Not only did you have trouble with rents, you had trouble with sales too. Like take a condo, like the numbers were ridiculous. Like, uh, like at one point in time, there was like almost 400 condos on the market for sale. It, right. You know what I mean? Like for that to happen overnight, it's kind of crazy. And obviously that puts the demand, you know, it obviously shifts from, uh, you know, supply and from a demand to a supply. Right. <laughs> so, and, 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 you know, that that's pretty consistent with like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle. People are kind of getting out of those high dense areas. And this is why we, you know, our investment thesis is to go into suburbs and buy these garden style apartments, um, you know, these, these walk-up units that yes. you're spread apart. I mean, it's sort of medium density. It, we can have a lot of units on the property, but it is for each tenant. It's not like you're stacked in like a grid condo system. You've got your space. It's a big community. There's some green space. Um, we think that this is how people are going to be living in the future, the, the suburban apartment complexes. Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing, right? So our core was affected, sort of like you said, like New York and stuff. Um, but the suburbs actually jumped, like home prices, everything. Um, uh, we had 26.5% increase last year from the year before, which is ridiculous and obviously not sustainable. Right. Um, right. Even even what they're projecting this year is only going to be about fourteen point five percent. So you can already see there's a, a decrease from last year, right. but uh, right. it's still crazy. I mean, those are those are unsustainable numbers. And uh, but yeah, like it, it's a lot of the work from homes, like you said. People are able to move, get more space for the same money, although that's shrinking now with the amount of people going. Um, on the positive, our core is starting to uh, make a comeback. And it's starting like rents are starting to have stabilized and uh, prices are starting to come back up as well. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, what happens post pandemic? I mean, it's, it's kind of a blip on the radar. I think we'll all see, but the big trends are like, you know, the shrinking middle class, right? We cater towards the low, little low middle class, 700 bucks to $1,400 a month. We call it workforce housing, it, especially in our country. I think Canada too. I mean, 
population is increasing, where we have more immigration, our, our population is going up, and especially our lower end population, right? It's the, it's the divide of the, of the wealth gap in Absolutely. any country. And, and that's why we kind of cater towards the lower end because increasing demand for that, they need good value housing, which we provide. Right, which is smart. Like our commercial, I think, is to, with all the shutdowns, our commercial took a big beating. Um, but not obviously not commercial residential. I mean, commercial like stores, right. malls, you know what I mean? And I, I would imagine that's, you know, across the board anywhere that's had major shutdowns. Right, right. We're actually, I mean, I, I wouldn't invest in, if there's only thing I would invest in, it's like the storefront. I'm still uncertain about that. And I don't have a good grasp about it. But something I am doing outside of apartments is buying some office because, I mean, most people would think it's kind of crazy. But when people think it's crazy, that's when you get the best pricing. And at some point, at what point can you get it at such a low cost basis where it makes sense? Right. You can run that thing at 50 percent occupancy and still cash flow. To me, that's a no brainer. I mean, that occupancy has got to come back up. That's true. I mean, you can't work forever from home. There's certain things that need gatherings. I mean, it's I, and that's right. the thing. I think a lot of people who move to the suburbs are going to get a wake up call. Some of them were right and they'll get to work from home. And there's going to be some people that are going to get called back and that's going to be like a wake up call. Right. Yeah. I mean, we won't buy office on the coastal markets because a lot of those are more tech workers and they're more independently working. But we, you know, we'll buy in the Midwest and the South because, I mean, it's a little bit more old school out there. And, you know, we'll try and buy these these places where, you know, if most people that work in office are making 40 grand, 50 grand a year or less. And I mean, they need to be babysat. Right. And they need to be in an office setting and have their supervisors over them. So you get FaceTime. I mean, I think a lot of people have kind of got in it pretty good these this past year working from home and kind of been screwing off a little bit, watching a little bit too much YouTube on the side. Um, <laughs> I think you got to come back. You got to get these guys back to work. I mean, I'm not their employer, but that's just kind of my hunch. And I think, yeah, it, it, it's nice. Everybody got a little break, got to spend a little more time at home. But uh, we got to get this country going again and we got to get back to work. And I think companies are going to start to bring them back to the office. Yeah, I agree with you. I also think that the, um, like I said, I think retail is going to be different. And we already started seeing this long before the pandemic. Um, But I think the only thing that the pandemic did is supercharged what's happening. Um, A lot more people getting comfortable with online orders. I, and just doing everything via e-commerce, I think there's going to be less need for retail stores as we knew it. And it's going to be more warehousing, order it online and go pick it up at the store if you want, or just have it shipped. Right. Right. But yeah, the, the trend is like less uh, shopping malls. Those are kind of a dying breed, but the shopping center, right? Your grocery store, your barber, your, your food stores, those I think are going to become just as much important. But yeah, Absolutely. like, you know, those large shopping malls, those are those are probably going to be going by the wayside. I mean, I'll probably take a gander and guess that I'm sure Macy's will just be bankrupt in the next decade or something like that. Yeah, or they'll have to change their model if they're willing to. Or sometimes, that's the other thing. Sometimes uh, people are so big that they just can't shift fast enough to uh, avoid the, uh, what, what's the word? Uh, hmm, to, what was the word I was going to use? 
Ah, yeah, they just, they just become too clumsy and they have to be shareholders at that point. I mean, it's just that's it exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, that's why I don't invest in stocks. <laughs> yeah, I can't stand stocks. Um, I think it has a purpose, but uh, if it's something that's something that I have no uh, say in or no, uh, like, yeah, it's one of those things that is totally out of my hands and. I don't, I don't know. To me, playing the stocks is like going to the casino. Right. I think I enjoy the casino a little bit more. Right, right. Actually, I probably enjoy investing in that dog coin much more than investing yeah. in stocks. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you, man. Um, wow. That was, uh, it was pretty informative. So I, I think we think a, l- a little bit alike. I think we have the uh, some similar thoughts. Um, we have some differences, obviously. But uh, yeah, that was very informative. I'm glad you uh, were on. Is there uh, any last piece of advice you'd like to give to uh, any of my listeners? No, no, get started, guys. I mean, if you're under a quarter million, half a million dollars net worth, you got to buy a rental property. Um, I'm not a big fan of house flipping, wholesaling. I mean, that's just ways of making money, right? Trading time for dollars. Whether you're a real estate agent, an engineer, a doctor, you're just trading time for money. You got to parlay that into cash flowing investments that put money into your pocket. Um, maybe you're an already a credit investor. And that's where I think syndication deals come in. Um, you guys can check out my free guide at simplepassivecashflow.com slash syndication to learn more about that. But yeah, I mean, until you trade your, your time for money to get money to buy assets and then have those assets work harder for you. I mean, you're just, you're just running on that, that treadmill. Makes sense. I'm going to put your website and information, uh, you know, on the uh, podcast and the uh, information below. So they'll have my listeners will have access to it. Um, in the meantime, I just want to say, you know, thank you for being on the podcast and uh, let's keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Hello, everybody.